The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 28. Hello, and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. First of all, a quick apology to those of you who were eager and quick enough to listen to the first version of this episode. I had a small flash of insight after I uploaded the original version, and I have liked it enough that I have now re-recorded this to include such insights at the end of this one. So I'll crave your indulgence to have a listen again, or indeed just skip to the last two minutes or so of this upload, and I promise I have learned the lesson that I should never prepare an episode in a hurry. If you didn't catch the first version of this episode before it was deleted, do not worry. Everything that was in it is still included here. So let's get started. Again. I must confess to having been quite surprised by the passage that we covered in the previous episode, number 27. Despite my great love for this playwright, and of course for this play, there are occasional moments in the vast quantity of material that leave me either hungry for whatever is going to happen next, or itchy to take a scissors or a red pen to it and just get rid of it. Of course, this mad journey that you've joined me on is through the entire text of Hamlet, and it wouldn't do to leave any of it out. And indeed, Sometimes these passages that seem less than scintillating at first reading prove themselves full of insight and interest. Shakespeare has thoroughly derailed and distracted us with all of the preceding talk about the people of Elsinore drinking too much and how a tiny little fault can prevent the magic of alchemy from happening. All of this is, or should be, very effective in just about holding our attention long enough to make us forget, almost, that we are up on the battlements, and there may or may not be an armoured ghost on the prowl. Perhaps Hamlet has even more to say, but Horatio interrupts. There's a particular music, an urgency, to the fact that he completes Hamlet's line of verse. Hamlet has been reaching his point about this and that fault, leading a man to his own scandal. Look, my lord, it comes. We return to our favourite stage direction all over again here with Enter Ghost. Despite the teeth-chattering cold and the aggravating boorish noise coming from Claudius's drinking marathon all the way downstairs, Hamlet speaks rather extraordinarily here. Of course, we expect the ghost to be a facet of any approach to this play, whether he is actually on the stage or a voice from off, or however any given director may choose to stage it. But it's still a big moment. If you think about the real circumstances affecting this character, Here is this smart young man, disaffected and in mourning over his father's death, now seeing this same father's ghost. It's terrifying. It's against nature. Hamlet's speech here is expansive, but tightly woven, so I'll read the whole thing through before we break it down a little bit. Angels and ministers of grace defend us. Be thou a spirit of health or goblin damned. Bring with thee airs from heaven or blasts from hell. Be thy intents wicked or charitable, thou comest in such a questionable shape that I will speak to thee. I'll call thee Hamlet, King, Father, Royal Dane. Oh, answer me. Let me not burst in ignorance, but tell why thy canonised bones, hearsed in death, have burst their cerements, why the sepulchre, wherein we saw thee quietly interred, hath oped his ponderous and marble jaws to cast thee up again. What may this mean that thou, dread corpse, again in complete steel, revisits thus the glimpses of the moon, making night hideous, and we poor fools of nature so horridly to shake our disposition with thoughts beyond the reaches of our souls? Say, why is this? Wherefore? What should we do? 
angels and ministers of grace are more or less the same thing. But as we've already seen, Shakespeare is very fond of splitting an image and getting two thoughts from the one idea. We'll even have another instance of this within this speech. Hamlet calls on God's angels to protect them from this apparition before he addresses it directly. It's interesting that he calls it thou throughout, rather than the more formal you. He clearly isn't yet convinced that this is his father. If it is him, he should be more polite and say you. But for now, he is the Prince of Denmark and he outranks any passing shade. Whether it is a good spirit or a goblin damned. Goblin, by the way, was a rather more forceful term in the past than whatever entry-level nastiness we ascribe to it today. In Paradise Lost, Milton refers to death itself as the goblin. Hamlet continues that whether this spirit comes wafting in on gentle airs from heaven or blasts of noxious vapours from hell, whether its intents are wicked or charitable, regardless, this thing's appearance is so intriguing that he'll talk to it. He uses the word questionable here in the sense that it is inviting questions. He's still not convinced of the apparition's status. I will speak to thee, he says. Now it gets interesting. There's some kind of a little change invited here. Perhaps the ghost comes closer, or Hamlet comes closer to it, or maybe the ghost lifts its helmet, or perhaps the moon glimpses through and illuminates him, or perhaps the mist clears. Whatever it is, these are all opportunities for directors, obviously, Hamlet goes from this rather hot line of questioning to saying, I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father, royal Dane, oh, answer me. Evidently, he's starting to be convinced. He wants to know what the deal is here, and there's almost a teenaged impatience to the image of him bursting to know. Let me not burst in ignorance, but tell why thy canonised bones, hurst in death, have burst their cerements, why the sepulchre, wherein we saw thee quietly interred, have oped his ponderous and marble jaws to cast thee up again. It's rather unusual for Shakespeare to have used burst twice here, and in different ways in such quick succession. Hamlet imbues the idea of his father waking from the dead with great violence. His bones were given the final sacrament, and thereby canonised, hearsed in death, but now they have burst their cerements, or the garments in which they would have been buried. He wants to know why the sepulchre, the tomb, wherein he saw the dead king quietly laid to rest, has opened up its ponderous and marble jaws to cast him up again. The next example here this is it, of getting two out of one from the same image. The mouth of the tomb is both heavy, or ponderous, and marble. This image of the tomb's mouth opening up to, to spit out or to vomit the king's dead ghost is pretty alarming, and of course it's very effective. And indeed, the tomb itself is not it so much as his. So even it is being anthropomorphised, shall we say, into having its own character. Hamlet continues asking this sequence of who's and what's and why's. What may this mean, that thou dead corpse, again in complete steel, revisits thus the glimpses of the moon, making night hideous, and we fools of nature so horridly to shake our disposition with thoughts beyond the reaches of our souls? Say, why is this? Wherefore? What should we do? If there were any doubt as to how the ghost needs to be costumed, the description is right here. The dead corpse is once again in complete steel, or full armour. And Hamlet just wants to know why it thus revisits, and this is pure Gothic romance about 200 years early, the glimpses of the moon. 
It's a beautiful turn of phrase, and like so many of this play's lines, it gives its name to a novel, in this case by Edith Wharton. Hamlet wants to know why the ghost is here, making night hideous, and rattling we fools of nature so horridly, with thoughts that are quite beyond the capacity of their souls or minds to fathom. Not at all unreasonable questions to ask your dead father when he appears to you in a full suit of armour, now are they? Shakespeare is doing some major forecasting with this scene, laying groundwork for some scenes and events in the play that won't happen for a few hours on stage, or a few years in this podcast. The king was buried formally and with full ceremony, laid to rest in a quiet, imposing tomb. So for his spirit to burst forth out of the ceremonial robes in which he should have been interred, and for this tomb's mouth to open and spit him out, is a horrifying perversion of the custom and the rites of burial. Later in the play there will be another burial whose rites are maimed, and of course we will encounter one of the most famous characters from the Danish court, who doesn't say a single line in the play. But Hamlet knew him, and he's important, because just like the king, his grave is disturbed. Not only that, two of the play's most memorable characters are professional grave diggers. Death and its ceremonies, the pomp, the circumstance and the dreadful passage of time are omnipresent. Our young prince, already dressed in black and distraught over his father's death, is now confronted by the most unnatural upset of the normal rites of death. And the ghost itself, and this rupture of death's order, and any hope of a process of mourning, will haunt the rest of the play. Hamlet's disposition is indeed shaken by all of this, and the play's action will be determined by it. The poor young man concludes the speech with continued determination. Say, why is this? Wherefore? What should we do? You can hear him getting even more distraught as all of these questions bounce inside his head. And of course you know by now that we'll have to leave the ghost's response to all these questions until the next episode. Thanks, as ever, for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time. I also hope that there will be no repeats of this having to repeat an episode. Until then, you can catch up on any podcasts that perhaps you've missed, or get plenty of background information on the website, thehamletpodcast.com.